Hi, everyone. This is Nutshell Politics, and I'm your host, Justin Kinney. Thanks so much for tuning in and listening today. I'm excited to be here. Now, when I say the year 1979 and the word revolution, the first thing that probably pops into most people's heads took place in the country of Iran. The Iranian revolution overthrew Shah Mohammad Reza Pahlavi and resulted in the formation of the Islamic Republic of Iran. And this is probably one of the most well-known revolutions during this time period. And its effects have been felt throughout the decades, even up to today, with the protests that are currently taking place in Iran. That said, it was not the only revolution that took place during this time period. And there were several others, including the one that I want to touch on today. There was the Salvadoran Civil War, started in 1979, carried all through the 80s up until 1992. You had Cambodia, which was liberated from the Khmer Rouge by a Vietnam-backed revolutionary party. And then you also had the popular overthrow of a dictatorship in Nicaragua. And Nicaragua is where I want to really focus on today because we, we are seeing another uprising in this country. And it's actually one that's a lot closer to home for most of us. Now, Nicaragua, for those of you who aren't aware, is in Central America. It has a population of about 6 million people. A lot of those are indigenous people. You also have uh, people of European, African, and Asian heritage, a fair amount of immigrants there. It's a pretty popular tourist destination. It has the second largest rainforest in all of the Americas. And it's fairly well known for its uh, lakes and volcanoes as well. Now, Nicaragua was originally inhabited by indigenous cultures, a lot of indigenous people since ancient times, as far back as you want to go. But the Spanish Empire conquered this entire region in the 16th century. And this rule from this European empire lasted up until 1821, when Nicaragua officially gained their independence. But ever since they gained their independence, Nicaragua has undergone many, many periods of unrest, from political unrest to economic problems, multiple different dictators, uh, you had the Nicaraguan Revolution, the Contra War, but probably one of the most impactful regimes of the entire lifespan of Nicaragua was the Somoza dynasty. Now, Nicaragua, as I said, has experienced many different military dictatorships, but the longest was the dictatorship of the Somozas. This is a hereditary dictatorship. It lasted from 1927 up until the revolution with the Sandinistas in 1979, and we'll get to those in a second. The Somoza dynasty included four different leaders. You had the original Somoza Garcia, and it was under him that Nicaragua became one of the first countries in the world to ever ratify the UN Charter. After a couple of leaders who were in the hereditary line but didn't last very long, you got to a man by the name of Anastasio Somoza de Baile. Uh, frequently, he was just referred to as Somoza, and he became president in 1967, and this is the leader who was ultimately deposed in 1979 during the revolution. He was seen as a dictator, and you saw a lot of rising opposition to his dictatorship pop up throughout the 60s and the 70s. Ultimately, a group called the Sandinista National Liberation Front took hold as the leader of the opposition force, and they led the Nicaraguan people against the dictator and established a revolutionary government in its place. Now, the Sandinistas had a leader by the name of Daniel Ortega. And when the Sandinista National Liberation Front successfully managed to overthrow Somoza, Ortega became kind of the de facto leader. In that immediate period after the, the revolution overthrew Somoza, there was something called the Junta of National Reconstruction. This was a five-person group that officially ruled Nicaragua, but any sort of effective power was held by Ortega. But approximately five years after the revolution, they switched and moved into a, a presidential system. 
and they held a presidential election, and Ortega officially won it. He was, again, one of the leaders of the revolution, so he was fairly popular. There were some opposition parties that claimed the election wasn't fair. And this position wasn't just held within the country of Nicaragua either. Uh, the Reagan administration, who Reagan was president at the time here, a lot of the U.S. media outlets also kind of claimed that the election was not free nor fair. And you had other people in like the Western European region, some non-governmental NGOs, IGOs that thought this election was illegitimate. But either way, Ortega did win the election. He managed to take office in January of 1985. And he led the country as president for about five years. He did lose a re-election campaign in 1990. And he went through a series of other presidents, a man by the name of Chamorro, Aleman, uh, Bolaños. But eventually Ortega returns and he wins election in 2007. And he has been the president there ever since. Now, I should mention too, during these early years after the Nicaraguan Revolution in 1979, you had an anti-Sandinista movement pop up as well. They were frequently just called the Contras. Uh, the Contra War was a pretty big deal during the 1980s, and this essentially became a battle between the more left-wing communist-backed Sandinistas and a collection of various more right-wing rebel groups, again called the Contras. Now, you're most likely to have heard of this group through a scandal of the Reagan administration called the Iran-Contra Affair, or the Iran-Contra Scandal. And this was essentially a deal because with Reagan as president, he was more a supporter of the Contra cause. He didn't like having a socialist-backed group like the Sandinistas right in our hemisphere. And so several administration officials in Reagan's administration helped facilitate the sale of weapons and arms to Iran. And then through that, they hoped to kind of fund the Contras in Nicaragua. And this would not have been as big of a deal, even from the very early stages. The rebels did receive some financial and military support from the U.S. government. And this led to Congress banning U.S. support of this. There was something called the Boland Amendment, which was aimed at limiting U.S. government assistance to the Contras in Nicaragua. And this was actually a series of three different legislative amendments that were put into place during the early 80s. But the Reagan administration continued this support, and so this is what led to the Iran-Contra scandal. So if you're familiar with that term, that's roughly where this is taking place. Now, especially early on in this, the Contras did manage to be fairly successful. They'd been carrying out quite a few different assassinations of members of the Nicaraguan government, and a lot of this is because the CIA was pretty heavily backing them. But as that support waned, and especially when the Iran-Contra scandal popped up, the Contras really fell apart. They weren't really able to keep this up without the outside support from the United States, as well as a couple other groups, including some of the ethnic minorities who are within Nicaragua, especially on Nicaragua's Mosquito Coast. This is a much more indigenous region, and the Sandinistas were frequently denying them a lot of autonomy that they really wanted. And actually, they began to use what was called forced relocation and even sending in the military an armed force against some of the complaints that they got from these ethnic minority groups. So there were multiple groups involved on this, but essentially with the 1984 general election that took place, the Contras kind of fell out of style. They did continue to exist for several years past that, but they didn't really pose much of a threat post this election. Now, all of this history is important for what's going on today because of a couple big reasons. First, this past Thursday was the 39th anniversary of the Sandinista Revolution's victory. And this is what originally brought Ortega to power. But second is that because Ortega is now back in power again since 2007, 
people have started to argue that this once revolutionary activist has actually become much like the person that he helped depose back in 1979. Uh, he's actually become much more like a dictator. And this has really come to a head just this past week. Nicaragua actually used to be one of the most peaceful and safe countries in all of Central America. But due to some recent policy changes and a real crackdown by Ortega's paramilitary forces and government, Nicaragua is essentially right on the verge of a complete national breakdown, a complete catastrophe. Ortega is fairly well known today for being quite corrupt. There's, he has quite a few different corrupt deals that he's made with a lot of different individuals, including some members of the Catholic Church, even some of the leaders of the Nicaraguan private sector. And he has essentially taken over a lot of the different branches of government there, from the police and army, to the judiciary branch, to the legislature branch, in return for stability and economic growth. He claims that having all of these branches under his control makes the country more stable. But there's a famous quote by a man named John Dahlberg Acton, uh, frequently known as just Lord Acton. And he was an English historian and politician, and, and a writer actually as well. And he is best known for this remark. Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men. And this is something he wrote in a letter to an Anglican bishop back in the late 1800s. And it, I think it really does apply not only to what's going on in Nicaragua, but to people in general. He was hitting on this idea of the human heart and human nature being easily corruptible. And when you see a, a leader like Ortega in Nicaragua starting to consolidate power from multiple different areas, multiple different branches of government, you start to see this power corrupt. And so while this man used to be a revolutionary fighting against dictatorship, he has become a dictator himself. Ortega is one of the few communists still from the Cold War era who is still around and still in power. He does still have some supporters, and they refer to him as a patriot. He's actually called Commandante Daniel. People have this affection for him going all the way back to his days with the Sandinistas. But he has a lot of critics now, uh, even before the most recent violence, who claim that he has been corrupt, as I mentioned. And he's become much more authoritarian, kind of a... Um, a typical military strongman. Now, he doesn't look that way. If you actually look at a picture of him, he's kind of short. He's got these big square glasses, looks a little bit nerdy almost. But he has essentially turned his back on a lot of the revolutionary ideas that propelled him to politics in the first place. And people basically argue that he now resembles that original dictator, Somoza. And what's been going on recently really started back in April. Nicaragua has been facing an economic problem recently. In particular, they had a big budget shortfall that came up in the early parts of this year. And Ortega, in April, proposed reducing pension benefits as a way to help cover that. And this suggestion of changes to the country's social security system, combined with some governmental inadequacy and corruption in other areas, led to some protests across the country. And rather than negotiate... Daniel Ortega sent out paramilitary forces and began shooting. His forces used live ammunition fired upon civilian protesters to help shut down some of these demonstrations. But this quite predictably angered the civilians even more, and you started to see these protests expand and multiply. In particular, you saw another protest pop up on May 30th, right at the end of May. And again, these protests were met with gunfire. People started to demand that Daniel Ortega resign and step down, or at the very least, renegotiate some things. But rather than do that, Ortega has 
continued to crack down further. So these protests and the violent response to them have continued through the months of June and now into July. And the death total is now, I believe, up to around 300 with close to 2,000 people injured. Now, these numbers in and of themselves are pretty horrifying, but it gets even worse when you start putting this in perspective of their general population. So to put that roughly in perspective, the around 2,000 injured in a country about the size of Nicaragua, when adjusted for population, would be the equivalent to around 110,000 people injured in the United States. And when you look at around the 300 plus people dead, that would be like the government of the United States massacring something like 9,000 people. So this is a pretty massive and horrifying ordeal that's taking place there right now. And while there are some official like armed rebel groups in opposition, most of these civilians are unarmed. This didn't always used to be the case, especially back in the 80s and into the 90s when the Contra War ended. There were a lot of firearms on the streets. You could buy an AK-47, for instance, for about 25 bucks. And so the, the government at the time, the National Police, began kind of a buyback program. And in 2005, they passed a pretty comprehensive firearms act. This really, really kind of redefined how citizens could get firearms, how they could carry them, how they could use them. It defined what types of firearms were allowed. And while this new bill does not in any way like ban guns or anything, in fact, the restriction is about the same as what you can find in many places here in the United States, it was a pretty severe limitation from what it used to be in Nicaragua. It used to be a lot easier to get a gun permit, but now it's much more difficult. There's a pretty serious background check policy. There's a psych evaluation. But all of that said, it is still very possible to own a gun, and many people in Nicaragua do. However, Nicaragua is still not considered a heavily armed country. It has one of the lowest rates of guns per capita in the world. And up until this most recent conflict, it actually had one of the lowest homicide rates in the world. It's frequently used by gun control advocates as the example in the world of how a low gun ownership rate can lead to low homicide rates. Now, I'm personally not sure you can use a small country like Nicaragua and apply those principles to a country like, say, the United States. But a lot of people have tried to do that over the years because of these two facts. Now, I would mention here that there are a couple other reasons Nicaragua is relatively safe and peaceful. First, you don't really have the same kind of gang culture that you find in many of these other Central American countries. You know, El Salvador and Honduras are frequent hotspots for gang activity. And those are two of the most homicide-ridden places in the world. Nicaragua doesn't really have that same culture. That's not to say gangs don't exist, but mostly the gangs in Nicaragua are homegrown. They don't really have the same backing of many of the gangs in El Salvador, Honduras, even Guatemala, of like, say, the MS-13 or Barrio 18 from foreign sources. But you also had some Nicaraguan government policies that were more about preventing crime and focused on some of the underlying causes of criminal violence and less so much on policing crime like you do in some other locations. In particular, their approach is very, very different from other countries in that region. And this all led to Nicaraguans have a, a very high level of trust in their state government and their state security, their army forces, the police forces. But what's happened under Ortega is that trust has started to deteriorate. And the civilian population is largely unarmed now due to many of those policies initially. And this is why what's happening there really cannot be considered a civil war. Because while there are a handful of small rebel groups, mostly what this is is a government massacre. They're massacring unarmed civilians by the dozens. 
And a very large number of the victims have actually been young students as well. Students tend to, actually in many countries, be at the center of protests. We've seen this here in the United States. That's what's happening in Nicaragua. And this has led to them being the primary victims of a lot of this government crackdown. In one of the more horrific stories that just popped up recently, you saw forces that were in support of President Ortega, uh, some of these paramilitary forces, trapped and attacked student protesters that had set up shop in a church. Now, most of the people in the church were, again, civilians. You had students, you had at least a couple priests, doctors, journalists, some volunteers that were essentially trapped here in this church that was called Divine Mercy. And now this siege of the church lasted something like 15 or 16 hours until a couple members of the clergy helped negotiate with the government forces to, for the students to be allowed to leave. This negotiation, though, did happen a little bit too late, as two students were actually killed during this confrontation by some of the paramilitary forces. Now, these paramilitary groups are essentially wearing hoods and masks and opening fire on civilians, frequently unarmed civilians. And so this is a pretty terrifying situation that's taking place in Nicaragua, and it's drawing condemnation from groups around the world, including here in the United States, uh, Vice President Pence, President Trump have spoken out against this, and they have urged the Organization of American States, which is a continental group in the Americas, but they've urged this organization to condemn what's going on in Nicaragua, and the OAS has started to listen. They have condemned the violence, and they have called on Ortega to accept an early election process, which would allow him to lose the election, essentially, but lose with a little bit more dignity, which they think he's much more likely to accept than being forcibly deposed, which would cause a lot more bloodshed in a country that's already seeing a fair amount of blood. Ortega has largely rejected a lot of these demands. He claims that the protesters are actually terrorists, and they're attempting an illegal coup. And under him just a few days ago, the government approved a law against terrorism, which most people have looked at and are fearful that it could be used against the protesters. Now, this is not just the OAS, which has stepped up. The U.S. State Department, the U.N., the E.U. have all essentially called for an end to this violence. But Ortega, his wife, who I, I should have mentioned earlier, is actually his vice president, so it's a real family affair. And his supporters don't really seem to show any signs of slowing down, any signs of stopping. But the protesters themselves... Also, to their credit, seem very brave. They're really standing up, again, without a lot of weapons. They're massively outarmed, but they don't seem to be giving up either. And so this is a crisis right now that's really become a humanitarian nightmare full of bloody, ruthless repression from the government, attacks on students, attacks on priests, attacks on journalists, blocking ambulance access for the wounded. Some of the paramilitary groups have engaged in that sort of activity as well. And it's really taken some of these outside groups' involvement to gain any sort of concessions at all. I mentioned earlier with the church thing, it was largely brokered by a couple of the member, a couple of members of the clergy. But the U.S. State Department actually stepped in and helped with that process as well. Now, as a bit of an outsider here, I don't pretend to be an expert in Nicaraguan politics. But Ortega is a guy, as I mentioned, he was this kind of former guerrilla fighter, Marxist from the Sandinistas. But since coming to power again in 2007, he really seems to have sidestepped a lot of the democratic ideals that the country had been pursuing. He, he assumed control of all the different branches of government, including the military, including police. He actually banned some opposition parties. He rewrote parts of the Constitution. And essentially, he seems to have fallen in love with his own power, which, again, going back to this idea of absolute power corrupting, makes perfect sense. And you combine that with a population that is really unable to fight back. And there's not a whole lot of hope for what's going forward in this, unless he decides voluntarily to step down, 
which again does not really seem likely. You have this regime that's violently clinging to their power in the face of this political unrest, and despite being massacred in several cases, these student population or student-led populations seem to be really seeking justice for those who have been killed and move back towards some of those democratic ideals that they had been pursuing you know, a couple decades ago, as well as wanting this uh, ruling family, which is Ortega and his wife and some others, to, to step down. But Ortega is engaging in a lot of tactics that are not actually that uncommon in other parts of the world as well by labeling a lot of his opposition as things like delinquents, uh, malignant, terrorists, satanic, I use the word diabolical, sinister, you know, all kinds of these emotionally charged terms that are designed to dehumanize and to justify his own rule. And again, from kind of an outsider's perspective here, this seems to be following a very similar path as to what's happened in a South American country, Venezuela. Like Hugo Chavez, Ortega seems to want to remain in power indefinitely. And he has, again, with his wife next to him, maybe planned to pass it from family member to family member. But he's essentially working straight out of the Chavez playbook. He has changed around constitutional things to allow himself to stay in power. He is eliminating a lot of the ability of other branches to check him. Here in the United States, we have this concept of checks and balances where the three branches are supposed to keep each other in check. By taking control of all the different branches there, he has essentially taken that off the table. He's cracking down on a lot of this freedom of expression, of protest. He is repressing media and journalists. He is attacking these opposition forces, any other critics. And so while this country that once seemed to be kind of on the verge of a more democratic revolution when they started holding presidential elections really seems to be headed down this path, at least in my opinion, towards what you see in Venezuela right now with a regime that doesn't really seem to care much about the human cost to staying in power. And unfortunately, you have to wonder too if this is just following a, a, a cycle that Nicaragua has seen in the past. As I mentioned, Nicaragua is not a country that's seen a ton of peace in its history. There have been multiple revolutions, a lot of political unrest, and just you know, less than 40 years ago, there was a pretty violent one that put into power Ortega in the first place. And so this brutalization of its own people seems to be repeating itself. And unfortunately, it looks a lot like you're going to need some sort of outside influence, whether that's from the United States or neighboring countries or the UN or this OAS or the EU or I don't, I don't know who. But someone from the outside may ultimately end up having to step in to prevent more bloodshed. And that's unfortunately going to bring in its own line of questions and issues due to country sovereignty and how much an outsider country can really hope to do. This is what we saw with the United States overthrowing, say, Saddam Hussein. So questions of like, how do you go in and help stop a violent regime that's in love with their own power, massacring an unarmed population? How do you go in and stop that with the least amount of bloodshed, but also not creating a sort of power vacuum where a group like, say, a neighboring gang or, or even a, just a different violent dictator don't step in and take control that could potentially be just as bad or if not even worse as we've seen with Ortega you know essentially taking the the role of dictator from Somoza who he helped overthrow 40 years ago you know this this cycle is really difficult to break and having an outsider come in may be the best chance we have of breaking it but that's going to bring its own challenges that are going to have to be taken very carefully and very seriously if we really hope to stop this and not just delay it for another cycle down the road
Honestly, the best way of doing this may be to encourage some of the neighbors of Nicaragua, some of the other countries in Latin America, to help put pressure on Ortega, to help you know the people out, to help stop some of these human rights abuses, some of the corruption. Because while things like sanctions, uh, which Donald Trump actually announced sanctions against Ortega um, or some of his his officials a couple weeks ago, you know those things seem to have limited effect. Uh, they also don't tend to end up hurting the people in charge as much as they do hurt the people. So sanctions are, are always kind of an iffy prospect. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. But having other countries in that area would help avoid some of the problems of cultural, of cultural differences that we had, say, going into Iraq and the Middle East. And it avoids a lot of the criticism of uh, imperialism from, say, a major power like the United States or some country in Europe coming in from a different part of the world and trying to impose their will on a foreign government. Even a, a regime as bad as Ortega's, again, we saw this in Iraq and we saw the criticism that took. And Hussein was engaged in probably a lot worse things than Ortega is with some of his brutality, including gassing a lot of the Kurdish population. But if you were able to put together some sort of coalition of Latin American countries, some of its immediate neighbors, they may be able to put enough pressure on Ortega and to help push for talks at least, some sort of negotiation that would allow this to end much more peacefully without bloodshed and without some sort of invasion from an outside force. Now, this could also be accomplished if the United States or someone else in the in the UN helped push for some sort of mediation or negotiation as part of a UN initiative. I think that would also potentially work. But I do think the first step should probably be from a geographically close and culturally similar neighbor, rather than jumping immediately to the UN, which would, again, introduce a lot of its own problems. But I'm going to leave you with a quote by one of the most famous and well-regarded American presidents, Abraham Lincoln. And he said, nearly all men can stand adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power. And I think this is a pretty apt description of what's taking place there. You had a man who was seen as this powerful opposition rebel who fought against a, a dictator but the instant he was given power he fell in love with it and he has essentially become that which he despised many years ago the power that he has been given through election but also taken through authoritarian measures has at its core really corrupted his human heart and i think going forward we need to really hope and pray that someone whether it's a neighboring country or an opposition group, or even someone within the Ortega regime can really speak to Ortega and speak to his heart about what's going on there. Hopefully, maybe even change his mind, or at least push him to the negotiation table, because the the cost of absolute power is, is human life. Unfortunately, that's the case pretty much everywhere in the world, and we're seeing that rise now in Nicaragua, and the country is really standing at a precipice right now. So this is a situation that needs a lot of attention going forward. It's one that hasn't gotten as much news recently with some of the things that Trump has been doing in, in meetings with NATO, with Vladimir Putin, with Theresa May. But this situation in Nicaragua is about as bad as it gets right now. And I think it's really important that we as the population understand what's going on first and foremost, but also that we can help advocate for or on behalf of the Nicaraguans, put pressure on our own government to help or at the very least, be praying for the people there. But with that, I'm going to go ahead and end the episode. I really appreciate you guys sticking with me today. As always, I'd love to interact with you guys online. Follow me on Twitter at JustinR underscore Kinney. Find me on Facebook under my author name, J. Robert Kinney. If you're interested in supporting this podcast or advertising on it in any way, feel free to contact me. I'd be happy to talk with you about that possibility. But with that, I look forward to our next discussion here on Nutshell Politics. And I'm out of here in three, two, one.
Thanks, guys. Yeah.